Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. On the line with us is Greg Palace, the investigative journalist, author of his most recent book, How Trump Stole 2020, although he's got quite a collection out there at gregpalast.com, plus his regular writings, plus his newsletter. You can tweet him at greg underscore palast. Greg, welcome back. I understand you've been doing some digging into the backstory on the uh, Texas debacle. Tell us about it. Oh, indeed. At my site, you can see a story how Texas got laid, L-A-Y-E-D. This goes back. Look, the reason why Texans were freezing in the dark and getting ripped off on their electric bills goes back to George Bush and his buddy, Ken Lay, or Kenny Boy, as George called him, George W. Bush and Bush Sr. The Bushes turned out the lights. In 1999, as governor of Texas... George W. deregulated the power industry. And I should, when we use the term deregulated, that's a fancy word for decriminalize. And he did that for his buddy Ken Lay, who pleasured him then as the number one donor and biggest bundler for George Bush's, George Bush Jr.'s campaign for president. So he's the guy who funded the campaign in return to the billions he raked in from the deregulation market. That meant no caps on prices. And, and there's another side to it. We used to have in America the cheapest power prices in the Western world, and we also had the most reliable system in the world, partly because we limited electric companies, which were like these dull operators, to charging their costs plus a tiny profit, and pay attention to the word tiny profit, cost plus, they are required to maintain a level of reliability. Bush removed that. And it started, by the way, Bush Sr., who began the deregulation in 1992 as president as he was about to be kicked out of office by uh, the American people. So in pleasuring Ken Lay and funding their campaigns, the Bush family set the stage for turning out the lights more than once. This has happened more than once. So it's, And the only reason they can do it today, you're wondering, you know, Oklahoma, Minnesota, Nebraska, all these places were frozen. Why didn't their lights go out? Why didn't their bills go to $20,000 a day for your mobile home? The answer is that Texas remains deregulated. How? Because in America, we have giant interconnected systems. So if the lights, uh, if you run out of power in Ohio, you can get it from Illinois or you can get it from Montana. But Texas literally cut its lines. I kid you not. There are no lines that go in or out of Texas 
it's like a uh, it's like a ship cutting off its life uh, it, it, you know its lifeboats. So when Texas ran out of uh, had no power because they hadn't weatherized their systems, including by the way their nuclear plant. Who doesn't weatherize a nuclear plant? South Texas nuclear went down. They could have been powered completely by California, which has so much solar, so much wind and hydro, that it, at many times during the year, including about now, California is literally giving away power for free to other states because we have so much. We could have kept all the lights on in Texas and, and prevented 80 people from dying in the dark and cold. But Texas de, you know, insists on deregulating. That's Governor Abbott, who's now looking for the criminals that caused this problem, and he should find the closest mirror. He'll be able to nab the guy right there. So, you know, this so, goes back again to Bush and Lay. Go ahead. I mean, back in, in as you know well, Greg, in, in 76 and 78, the Supreme Court legalized political bribery, saying that, <laughs> you know, when an individual in 76 in the Buckley decision or when a corporation in 78 in the Bellotti decision wants to pour uh, money down the throat of a politician and say, I own you, uh, that's no longer called corruption or bribery. That's now called free speech and therefore is uh, protected by the First Amendment. So it sounds like uh, the Bush family uh, took advantage of this in a huge way, both Bushes, but particularly George W. as governor of Texas. How did, how did that relationship between George W. Bush and Ken Lay and Enron all... Enron was based out of Texas, wasn't it, or, was it, or were they based in California? Right. No, uh, Enron was a Texas company based out of Houston, and so were the other power pirates. Today they're called Vistra. And by the way, I want to make the point, you know, people are talking about people paying tens of thousands of dollars. Someone's collecting that money. And, and that name has been pretty well hidden. And I want to bring up the name Vistra, which is the corporation which, whose stock value went up $2 billion this past week. $2 billion because they're collecting that money. They're the power pirates holding Texas by, by the By bulk. that money, you're and talking yes. about the, these $1,000 a day bills that people in Texas are getting for their electricity, those who didn't yes. lose their electricity? Yeah, well, they lost their electricity, but if you had your lights on for, say, two or three hours out of two or three days, you're going to pay a $10,000 electric bill. Cities are going bankrupt. But this goes back to Enron and uh, Ken Lay. Remember, he had enough sense to – he was arrested, by the way, for felony crimes of manipulating the the stock and electricity markets. He had enough sense to die before he uh, started his prison term. But Bush hasn't started his prison term. Uh, who was his co-conspirator in the manipulation of these markets. It's continued on. So Texas continued on this nonsense of uh, so-called deregulation. And that's how it went. And, and also, as you said, the, the deregulation of the power markets goes directly with the deregulation of the political markets, where basically guys like Ken Lay were allowed to buy and sell politicians like bags of sugar. So they do go together, the political deregulation and the power industry deregulation. But again, in Texas, it, you know, to watch uh, Governor Greg Abbott and the Attorney General Paxton look for the criminals, they ran, they gave speeches about how wonderful it was that Texas was so-called energy independent. That is, no lines that could save them in an outage. This happened more than once. They have literally no lines going in or out of Texas so they can be yeah, an energy island. Yeah, it happened in 2011, island. didn't it? Oh, didn't yeah. It, and... and 
and, and didn't they do an evaluation and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, you've got to weatherize your systems gov- at the very the least? Government sent, yes, the, the federal government uh, sent a note to the uh, Electric Reliability Council of Texas, ERCOT. It's very willing that it's called the Reli- Electricity Reliability Council. Uh, and so the federal government said, look, you don't have... You don't have power coming in from other states in case of an emergency. You haven't hardened your system against weather. You do get snow in Texas, not often, but enough. You know, they literally didn't, you know, they blamed the wind turbines, you know, Greg Abbott's tilting at windmills, right? They were warned, but the federal government, again, had no authority because, as you pointed out uh, on the air before, the only way that the federal government can have control and save the people of Texas if there are interstate lines, lines that cross the state border, and Texas made sure that they would have no lines crossing the state border, because they, they cared about protecting the power companies from federal regulation, as opposed to protecting the public from freezing in the dark. So the feds so, couldn't do anything. So, yeah, hey, Greg, you're in trouble. Yeah, in, in addition to being a brilliant reporter, you're also a pretty good, uh, pretty astute political observer. And the minute we have left, I'm curious, what, what do you think is going to come out of this? Do you see reforms on the horizon? I don't know. I mean, you have to get, you have to basically clean out the political stable. So Greg Abbott is calling for, and, and the Attorney General calling for criminal investigations of the Reliability Council. Well, it's their, it's their council. They created this thing. Greg Abbott mm-hmm. again, and by the way, Perry, for example, the governor, uh, his predecessor, the, the current governor's predecessor, is governor, who is the first energy secretary under Trump, said, you know, Texans would be happy to spend more than three days without electricity. This is Rick Perry. This is a quote. More, we, uh, electricity, we'd be, Texans would be without electricity for longer than three days, I'm quoting him, to keep the federal government out of their business. So unless hmm. the people of Texas say, we've had enough... You know, you're going to have to uh, you're going to have the same thing again and again and again. We've had it many times in Texas. It's not the first time. Yeah, it's the old cliche, cutting off your nose to spite your face. It's amazing. Greg Palace, gregpalace.com, the website. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Palace. Greg, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Always great talking with you. Keep up the great investigative reporting. Thank you. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman program. More of the news of the day. And your calls right after this. James in Charlotte, North Carolina, right? That's correct. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you, James? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to comment on the insurrection that happened recently, and Mm -hmm. probably offer a suggestion that I had. You know, a lot of these Nazi groups and what have you, they're kind of connected to the military, it seems. All of the gear that they get from the military, you know, they're well decked out in military gear and what have you. And since the insurrection, they're finding out that a lot of them, a lot of the people that's in it have been connected to the military. I would offer a suggestion that uh, either uh, President Biden or whoever is in charge of the military should come out with some type of thing stating that if anyone that's affiliated with these groups, any military individuals uh, present or past that's affiliated with these groups, would lose any type of 
pension. You know, a lot of them are getting monthly checks. They will lose their pension. They will lose their checks. Any type of uh, funding they're getting from the military, they will lose it. And they will also be given a dishonorable discharge. You see, I think I, that way it would deter a lot of these army people from joining these groups. You know, and the ones that's already affiliated with them, it will make them think twice about staying with them, you know, if they are thinking about they're going to lose their income in any type of way. And I would also take it even further to police officers. You know, I don't know what type of creed or oath that they take, but I think they need to rewrite that to where even the veterans is there now. All of them, I think they need to be given something to sign, stating that, you know, have you ever been or are you affiliated with these groups? Or if you are found to be affiliated with these groups, you will lose your job immediately and any type of income or pension that you're getting from them. Because really, we have to be hard with these people because these groups are really kind of, you know, they're getting loud and they're not going away. And it seems like we have people in our offices that kind of support or, you know, they're not really, you know, on board and trying to get rid of them. You know, right now it seems like all the talk that's going on is kind of low-key. I think I think this is a major, major thing that we're dealing with, and we're going to have to stamp this out some way before it, it gets out of hand. I agree, and I think your analysis and suggestions are both brilliant. I believe that what this would require, the way to do this, would be to change the law that has to do with uh, insurrection so that if somebody's convicted of insurrection, not only do they face jail time and a fine, but the terms of their severance from any government body that requires an oath of office, whether it's being a police officer in the military, some of the you know national security positions, whatever, will be converted from honorable to dishonorable or whatever that equivalent may be, which typically causes somebody to lose their pension and lose all the other benefits that they get going forward. Does that kind of summarize what you're suggesting, James? That's true, yes, uh-huh. but really because, like I said, you have to give them some type of deterrent because if, yep. I'm, if I want to join one of these groups and I know that I'm going to lose my monthly income, I'm going to think twice of that, you know, and I'm not yep. going to join. I think it really will make these people think twice about joining these groups, you know, because like I said, all of them, uh, there's a lot of military people affiliated, all the equipment yeah. that they have. No, I got it. James, we're out of time, but I got it. Uh, brilliant. Thank you. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. 
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back. There are a couple of cases making their way to the Supreme Court. I think this is this really amplifies the need for HR1, the the For the People Act, which I'm getting almost daily hysterical emails from Freedom Works and other right-wing groups saying, "Oh my god, it's the Gag Act. They're trying to gag the billionaires. They're you know, they're going to force uh, right-wing groups to disclose who their donors are, and then they're going to be subject to harassment from Antifa liberals and black people coming to their houses and stuff. I mean, this is, they're just hysterical, right? And uh, which tells me that this is really important legislation. But meanwhile, you've got these two cases, uh, uh, Bronovich versus DNC and Arizona Republican Party versus DNC, that are going to the Supreme Court. And uh, both, and if the Supreme Court takes these cases, uh, the Supreme Court heard uh, opening, I don't know if they heard opening arguments or if they heard the pre-arguments yesterday, but these cases were introduced at the court yesterday. And uh, this could be the tool that John Roberts and the conservatives on the court used to further gut the Voting Rights Act. You'll recall back in 2013 in the Shelby County case, the Supreme Court, uh, the opinion written by John Roberts, uh, you know, former lawyer for the uh, Reagan Justice Department, uh, the Supreme Court said, well, there's, you know, we've got a black president, so obviously there's no more racism in America, so we no longer need to have this preclearance provision where if Georgia or Florida or Alabama or Mississippi wants to change their voting uh, situations, rules and things uh, to make it harder for people to vote, if they want to cut in half the number of polling places, for example, in black neighborhoods, they first have to get permission from the Justice Department. They, the, John Roberts and the Supreme Court blew that up in 2013 with the Shelby County decision. And literally within a week, a dozen states had made it harder to vote for people in big cities and and in African-American communities. Literally within a week. Now we've got two more cases that could make it even easier for states to make it even harder for people to vote. And it looks to me like the only way to stop this this uh, you know cavalcade of voter suppression that uh, began with the Shelby County case and and this enthusiastic, <laughs> it's, I mean it's really bizarre you know this enthusiastic decision by by uh, John Roberts and all the conservatives on the on the court by the way all the liberals this is a five to four decision all the liberals said what are you crazy, I mean the the, the Voting Rights Act was renewed unanimously in the United States Senate. And still, John Roberts said, well, those people, they they voted for it because they didn't want to be accused of being racists. Honest to God. I mean, this was his rationale. And uh, but the fact of the matter is that there are still racists in the United States, a lot of them. And they run the Republican Party. And in particularly in the in the former Confederate states, they very much run the Republican Party. 
and they want to do everything they can to make it sure to make sure that black people can't vote and and increasingly to hispanics and and certainly for for centuries that native american people can't vote and in some cases they they even want to make it harder for women women to vote and and certainly for students to vote i mean texas and wisconsin are right at the forefront of the, oh no you can't use student id from a state university even though the state university verifies your citizenship you can't use that id uh, well yeah it is government issued technically but no you can't use that but you can use your gun license no problem i mean this is where we're at right now the republicans have decided as the only way that they can win elections consistently is to cheat is to prevent, is to choose their voters. I mean, they do this with gerrymandering, but now with this, all these, all these voter suppression efforts, and now it's going to the Supreme Court. So how do we stop this? The For the People Act, H.R. 1, is going to be dropped in the House this week in all probability, probably tomorrow. At the very latest, it'll be early next week. And a similar uh, piece of legislation, SB 1, Senate Bill 1, will be dropped in the Senate. And when those pieces of legislation hit, there's going to be an immediate partisan divide. You're going to see all the Republicans opposed to them because, as I said, the Republican strategy now is not we're going to win with ideas. We're going to win by doing things for the American people. No, 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 no. The Republican strategy is we're going to win by making it hard for people who don't like us to vote. And the Democratic strategy is, you know, as it has been since the 1930s, what can we do for the American people today? The Republicans sit around and go, well, that's just bribery. You're just buying votes by giving people Social Security, and you're buying votes by giving people Medicare, and that's just not right. You shouldn't be able to do that. You shouldn't be able to buy votes by giving people long-term unemployment benefits. And the Democrats are like, you know, we're not buying votes. We're doing our job. In a democracy, the job of legislators is to do what the people want done. So anyhow, to keep an eye on these two cases um, that are going to the Supreme Court, Arizona Republican Party versus DNC and uh, Bran- Branovich uh, versus DNC. And, and keep your eye on H.R. 1. This is going to be, a, uh, as Joe Biden would say, a BFD. And it's going to be all hands on deck, particularly since the Republicans will definitely try to use the filibuster to block any sort of reform of voting in the United States because they want to make sure that it's harder and harder and harder every day, every year for people of color to vote in this country. They used to love uh, older voters, too, and now they don't want older voters to be able to vote, too. If your driver's license is expired, you can't vote in most Republican states. No more Social Security voters. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Embattled Vote in America from the Founding to the Present by Alan J. Lichtman. This is from the introduction titled Voters and Non-Voters. On February 18th, 1965, advocates for the voting rights of disenfranchised African Americans ordered a rare nighttime march in the small town of Marion, Alabama, part of the state's Black Belt, to protest the jailing of James Orange. Prosecutors had charged Orange with contributing to the delinquency of minors after he enlisted students in voter registration drives. Alabama state troopers responded to the protest by beating peaceful demonstrators with billy clubs and sending terrified marchers fleeing into the night. Some sought refuge from police violence in a nearby restaurant, Max Cafe. 
State troopers followed them into the establishment, however, and one of those troopers, James Bonnard Fowler, fatally shot an unarmed 26-year-old black voting rights worker, Jimmy Lee Jackson. Insisting that Jackson had reached for a gun, Fowler claimed self-defense. Eyewitnesses told a very different story. They said that Jackson was trying to protect his mother from police violence and that Fowler shot him deliberately and without provocation. While Jackson languished in a hospital for eight days before dying from his wound, Alabama officials issued a warrant for his arrest for the assault of a police officer. They did not arrest, indict, or discipline Fowler or even release his name to the public. Fowler remained on the state police force, and a year later he shot and killed another unarmed black man, Nathan Johnson Jr., during an altercation at the Alabaster City Jail. State police officials were quick to purge both killings from Fowler's personnel file, but fired him in 1968 for assaulting his white police supervisor. In 2007, as part of a federal state effort to reopen cold cases from the civil rights era, Alabama prosecutors indicted the 73-year-old Fowler for murder. Two weeks before trial was set to begin in 2010, Fowler pleaded guilty to manslaughter and served five months of a six-month sentence. Fowler died in 2015, 50 years after killing Jimmy Lee Jackson. Americans were dying for the vote more than 175 years after the nation's founding because the framers made a consequential mistake when they drafted the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the Constitution's first ten amendments. They failed to enshrine in these pivotal documents of our democracy the right to vote, not just for men or even only white men, but for any American. Among many enumerated rights that the government cannot abridge, the right to vote remained conspicuously absent and remains so to this day. All subsequent amendments protecting the voting rights of racial minorities, women and young people, the 15th Amendment on race, the 19th Amendment on sex, 26th Amendment on age, are framed negatively, stipulating not what the states must do to ensure people's voting rights in America's democratic republic, but what they cannot do. Jimmy Lee Jackson died, one could plausibly argue, because the political leaders who drafted these amendments perpetuated the framers' mistake of failing to establish an affirmative right to vote. Jackson died because white supremacists who controlled southern governments had circumvented the 15th Amendment's prohibition against denying the right to vote, quote, on account of race, color, or condition of previous servitude. They did so through patently discriminatory, although seemingly race-neutral, restrictions such as poll taxes and literacy tests. As the pioneers of modern democracy, the founders understood that the right to vote grounds all other rights, that it empowers Americans to become participants in government rather than mere petitioners. But it was their omission of voting rights that triggered a war over America's embattled vote that continues to rage in the halls of Congress and in the courtrooms of federal judges. Yet, as in Marion, Alabama, it has spilled into the streets, too, with life and death at stake and the ongoing struggle for people's right to consent in their governing. Opposition to voting rights for all Americans has revolved around three critical issues. Despite the revolutionary rallying cry of no taxation without representation for most of U.S. history, the American political leadership has considered suffrage not a natural right, but a privilege bestowed by government on a political community restricted by considerations of wealth, sex, race, residence, literacy, criminal conviction, and citizenship. The notion of privileged access to the vote survives into our own time, albeit in subtler forms than in the past. Since the early republic, proponents of a limited vote have waved the banner of voter fraud, 
in earlier times to justify the disenfranchisement of supposedly corruptible people such as the propertyless workers, women, racial minorities, or immigrants. Today, it is the allegations of such forms of alleged election fraud as voter impersonation, repeat voting, voting by non-citizens, or balloting in the name of dead people that are used to justify restrictive measures like voter photo ID laws or draconian purges of registration rolls. Numerous studies have documented that such voter fraud is vanishingly small in recent elections, but the outcry continues as loudly as ever. Disputes over the vote have been intensely partisan, with principal justifications for voting restrictions functioning as thinly masked attempts to favor one party over another. From the end of Reconstruction through the early 20th century, for example, it was the lily-white Democratic Party that benefited politically from suppressing the African-American vote. In recent years, the partisan calculations have reversed, as African-Americans have become the most reliable of Democratic voters, and Republicans have come to depend on the white vote. The book, The Embattled Vote in America, by Alan J. Lichtman. Welcome back. 34 minutes past the hour on the line with us, Senator Bernie Sanders, a ranking member of the Senate Budget Committee, among many other things, sanders.senate.gov. Senator, welcome back to the program. I understand you've got... Big stuff Good coming to be up with you. Chairman of the budget committee, not ranking member anymore. Oh, that's right, Chairman. God bless you. So we've got the COVID relief bill, and also you've got a hearing tomorrow on Walmart. Uh, tell us about these things. Well, I, what I want to just mention to the listeners is, as a nation today, I think we can all appreciate we face a level of crisis that we have not faced in our lifetimes. I mean, twenty twenty was the worst year anybody has ever experienced. That's just a fact. And, and you know, Tom, I think you have been talking about it. I know that. It's not only the pandemic and it's not only the economic decline and it's not only uh, the threat of eviction and it's not only that people can't feed their children. It is the isolation and, you, you know, that people are feeling mental health crisis facing this country. Uh, so we have a lot out there that has to be dealt with. And what we have done, uh, working with the White House, is put together a very comprehensive program, uh, I think the likes of which we have not seen in a very long time, that addresses the needs of, of working families. You're talking about the COVID stimulus bill. I am. This is, yeah. Let me explain. Reconciliation is, is, you know, the rules here in the Senate are really arcane and in many ways absurd. To get normal legislation passed, you need 60 votes because people can filibuster. It'll just object. So this is a process, a budget reconciliation process, by which we can do it with 50 votes plus a tie-breaking vote from the vice president, which is probably where we are. There is no Republican has indicated that he or she is coming close to supporting what we're trying to do. So what we are trying to do is make sure that every working-class American uh, $75,000 for a person or less, $150,000 for a, work, uh, a family or less, will get, on top of the $600 that they recently got, another 1400 bucks. So that means if you're a family of four, husband, wife, two kids, that's 5600 bucks, which in these, this particular time uh, could mean a lot to a lot of families. Uh, we are going to extend uh, unemployment benefits through September with a $400 supplement on top of what you normally would get. Uh, we are going to raise, if I have anything to say about it, the minimum wage 
to 15 bucks an hour over a four-year period. We're going to do something, Tom, that we don't talk about enough in this country is child, childhood poverty, especially in minority communities, is outrageously high, one of the highest in the world. Uh, and we're going to cut childhood poverty by expanding the uh, child tax credits. If you're a mom or dad out there and you got kids, uh, you're going to get a lot of help through this bill. We're putting a lot of money into COVID, obviously, to make sure that people get the vaccines they need as quickly as possible. We produce the vaccines that we need. And we're doing a, you know, a million other things. One of the areas that I'm working on is, you know, at the end of this year, kids are going to be behind in their school. Many kids have had their education disrupted. Put a lot of money into summer programs for kids, recreation and, and educational programs, you know, child care, health care. This is a very comprehensive bill, which I think will be of, of great help to working class families all over the country. And what we're seeing is that it's supported very, it's a very popular uh, program, supported by something like 70% of the American people, including over 40% of Republicans. So when we talk about bipartisanship, we talk about unity. Speaking to the crises facing working class families is a way you bring about unity. Unfortunately, we don't see that unity here on Capitol Hill because we don't have one Republican prepared to support it, despite the fact that 40 percent of Republicans do support it. Do you think that this uh, what appears to be a strategy emerging coming out of uh, both with the work that you're doing and President Biden of saying, yeah, we're going to call this bipartisan, even if a single Republican doesn't vote for it, simply because the vast majority of Americans of both parties actually wanted. I mean, right. uh, we, we have to redefine that word bipartisan and get the damn news media to do the same thing, it seems. Exactly. Hey, you, I have not seen legislation. Now, maybe I'm wrong on this, but significant legislation which had which was so popular and which had so much bipartisan support. You know, I wish it was more than 40 percent of Republicans, but that's a lot. And that would translate, you know, 40 percent of 50 senators would be 20 senators supporting it. But we got zero senators supporting it. So I think the point to be made is that the Republican uh, Party here in Washington is way out of touch, way out of touch with the needs of ordinary Americans. And and we have got to make that clear to the American people. And the other point is there's a debate. You know, what, what does bipartisanship mean? And does that mean that you compromise, that you come up with something that is so weak, uh, so useless, that it doesn't mean anything to anybody? Hey, we got a great compromise bill, but nobody, it doesn't impact anybody. So in my view, what we need to do is address the needs of the American people. If Republicans here in the Senate and the House want to come on board, that's great. Let's listen to them. But most importantly, you've got to address the needs of the American people. And if Republicans refuse to do that, you know, I think they're going to pay a political price and we should make that happen. Yeah, let's hope. Now, I understand also you've got a hearing on Walmart. Tell me about that. Yes, we do. Well, it's not just on Walmart. Here's the issue. One of the scandals that that exists in the American economy today is that half of our people, Tom, are living paycheck to paycheck. And I know you know what that means. It it means that you get paid and you've got to pay the rent, you've got to pay... uh, you know, put gas in the car, you got to buy food for the kids, and at the end of the week, you got nothing. That's it. You're living paycheck to paycheck. And if during that week your car breaks down, uh, or your landlord raises the rent, or your, you know, your wife gets sick, well, you're in financial crisis. Half the American people are living in that situation. And one of the reasons for that, obviously, is that wages are much too low in America. And one of the reasons for that 
is we have not Congress has not raised the minimum wage since 2007, and it now stands at all of seven dollars and twenty-five cents an hour. Anybody out there think that any human being in America could survive on seven and a quarter, or nine, or ten bucks an hour? I don't think so. So in our legislation, we're going to raise the minimum wage to fifteen bucks an hour, and we've got to deal with the parliamentarian. I won't go through all of that stuff, but what we're doing was having a hearing, making a point that is not made often enough. And that is that you have large, profitable corporations like Walmart, like McDonald's, like Burger King, like uh, Dollar General, Dollar Tree, all of these large corporations that pay their workers starvation wages. And if you're paying workers starvation wages, those workers end up having to go on food stamps. They have to go on Medicaid. They have to go maybe in public housing. They have to get public assistance because you can't make it on eight or nine bucks an hour, which is what these some of these companies are paying. And the theme of this hearing is to say, why should the taxpayers of this country have to subsidize the Walton family, who own Walmarts and are the wealthiest family in America? They're worth two hundred billion bucks, two hundred billion dollars, and the starting wages at Walmart is eleven dollars an hour. So uh, I don't think that the middle class and working class of this country should be subsidizing Walmart. They should be paying their workers a living wage. That's what the theme is. Yeah. Meanwhile, down in Alabama, we have an Amazon operation that's trying to unionize. What's what's the state right. of unionization in America in general? I know the Supreme Court and you know multiple Republican administrations have taken a meat axe to the old Wagner Act and, and subsequent updates to it. Right. Where are we at? Absolutely We've got about right. two minutes here. Thank you for raising that break. again. This is it's a it's not a sexy issue, and it's not an issue that that media talks about, but it is an enormously important issue. And thanks for raising it. Here's the simple fact. If you are a member of a union, doesn't mean you're going to get rich, but everything being equal, you're going to earn more money than non-union workers who do the same work as you do. You're going to have better benefits, and you're going to have better working conditions. And the answer is pretty obvious. Why? Because you're not alone. You can sit down with your union and negotiate a contract that will provide better wages and benefits for you. That's what a union does. And companies understand that. And for many, many years, we have had companies making it as hard as possible for workers to join unions. They brainwash workers. They take them into the back room and they say, uh, unions are terrible. Unions are this. And if you join a union, we're going to shut down the plant. We're going to go to China. You know, if you uh, join a union, you know, and, and you got union organizers, people actively get fired. Oh, you were late three years ago. You're going to be fired from your job. So there's been a tremendous anti-union effort. And right now we are working on legislation that would make it illegal for companies to act illegally. I mean, which is what they're doing now, prohibiting people uh, from exercising their constitutional rights to form a union. So one of the things we want to do is grow the trade union movement in this country, which will give, in my view, will be a major step forward in growing the middle class uh, in America. Yeah, this, this is absolutely critical stuff. And you have been at the forefront of this for, for so very long and educated so many people, you know, in, in this venue and so many others. Uh, uh, we really, we really appreciate you, uh, Senator Sanders. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Well, Tom, for sure. good. Let's get together soon. Bye bye. I, I look forward to it. Thank you. Senator Bernie Sanders, the great Senator Bernie Sanders, carrying on and now the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, making things happen in Washington, D.C.
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Up next to your calls. Stick around. Dale in Harmony, North Carolina. Hey, Dale, what's on your mind today? Okay, thanks for taking my call, Tom. You're Bernie Sanders is on track right there, and I'll tell you, the animal agriculture and agriculture in general, the number one reason why things has got so bad is this is a fact. FBI does not investigate anything in agriculture without USDA invites them into it. Therefore, mm. the big corporations are pretty much free to go on and do what they want to do, and they won't face no criminal repercussions. They might get the Department of Justice for price fix or something like that's going on now, but there's nothing actually done. And then mm. the quality of all the food that we're eating is being damaged by the big corporations because of the chemicals that they're using to process, manufacture, preserve, get longer shelf life and all that stuff out of the food. And uh, that stuff is damaging the health of the Americans there. It's basically helping destroy your digestive system. And it's a nightmare of health problems that come with it. We've experienced this out on the farm. We've watched doctors' faces turn red. We've watched them run from the questions that we asked them. We've watched a little bit of everything go on. And uh, actually, the House Agriculture Committee said that we would have to sue them before they would do anything. That's how bad this thing is and how big the government cover-up is on it there. And I would really like to talk with you and Bernie Sanders and Mark Pocan, being his state is severely involved in this right here, and I could explain in detail what I'm talking about. And I actually got pictures to prove it. And I believe if you, if I remember correctly, you said your mother had Alzheimer's, this would hit yeah. directly in your family because this stuff right here causes uh, the high sulfur level that's coming from this, causes brain cell death. I want you to look it up. And then your sugar acids cause them to stick and clump together. That's what the Japanese studies are showing. And when you've got cows that act like they've got Alzheimer's, and you know what they were eating after you found out what the feed companies had put in the feed and everything, all this stuff lines up perfect to cause all, a lot of these health problems that we got out there. Yeah. Dale, you're a, you're a family farmer in North Carolina? We was award-winning dairy farmers until we got put out of business there. And there were several factors on that that put us out of business. It took a long time to explain it. But we told the doctors, carloads of them on the farm in 2014, that we know the lawyers had done told us this was a government cover-up. They smelt it. And we told them, said, what are you going to do when this busts out in the human population? They didn't say nothing. We didn't, I didn't have no idea what they was going to call it because they wasn't calling it the coronavirus. But I've had that uh, burnt wood sulfur smell blowed straight in my face there with uh, treating cows and everything there. And it's all coming. That stuff destroys your immune system, weakens your immune system down because it stops absorption of your vitamins and minerals. And it's all in our food supply. 
And uh, yeah, no, I, I'd, I'd really I, like I'm, to talk with you. I get you it. In depth on okay. that. If you get my phone number and call me in private and get some of those congressmen stuff to talk with us there, and I could explain in detail basically what is happening out here. Well, you can and you I, can call I, their offices, Dale. At bad two, on. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, the the number is two zero two 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 four thirty one twenty one. If you want to call any members of Congress, Dale, thank you for the call, and keep up the good fight. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. John Marvin here with you. You know, the National Guard did not show up. The D.C. National Guard did not show up at the Capitol building for hours. Well, the Capitol Police, and we heard this in the testimony the uh, day before yesterday, before Congress, the Capitol Police and uh, members of Congress themselves were on the phone with everybody from the president on down, begging them to send the National Guard. And I just wanted to share with you a, uh, a sentence, or a couple sentences here, from the D.C. National Guard's website. This is from dc.ng.mil, as in the District of Columbia's National Guard, part of the military, dc.ng.mil slash about-us, capital A, capital U, slash about-us. And it talks about, you know, today's D.C. National Guard remains strong with more than 2,700 soldiers and airmen, and it goes through. It was formed in 1802 by President Thomas Jefferson to defend the newly created District of Columbia. As such, the commanding general of the D.C. National Guard is subordinate solely to the President of the United States. The D.C. National Guard is the only National Guard unit out of all the 54 states and territories which reports only to the President. Now just let that sink in. For four hours... As people were being killed, as feces were being smeared around the walls of Congress, as Mike Pence was being hunted down, as a gallows was being built, the one guy who had immediate direct authority over the D.C. National Guard was watching it, watching all this happen on TV, gleefully, according to multiple reports from people who were in the White House with him. I sure hope they get to the bottom of this. This is just terrible. 
Brad in Carpentersville, Illinois. Hey, Brad, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's on your mind today? So I wanted to say I'm someone who believes in $15 an hour, but I also was wondering if that would affect and how that would affect people on retirement, like my aunt and uncle. They survive on a fixed income of Social Security and 401k instead of anything else are going to raise the yeah, price. No, is it, yeah, yeah, is it going to raise prices? The argument that conservatives always make about raising the minimum wage is that if you raise the minimum wage, you're going to raise the purchasing power of low-income Americans. They're going to buy more stuff, and by buying more stuff, they're going to stimulate the economy, and that's going to produce inflation because there's more demand for goods, so the price of goods will go up. And it sounds logical. And if we were talking about raising the wages of people making between fifty dollars and $150,000 a year, it's actually an argument that is defensible because then you're increasing discretionary spending. But for people who are making $7.25 an hour or people who are making anything under $15 an hour, you're not increasing discretionary spending. They're not going to suddenly go out and buy six new pairs of jeans just for the hell of it because they really like the new style. They're going, right. to, they're going to be buying survival stuff. And increasing purchasing on surviving, survival stuff has a small stimulative effect on the economy. It will help the economy, but it does not produce inflation. And in fact, here's the proof of it, Brad. The minimum wage was put into place in the 1930s. As I recall, it was 35, it might have been 1936, by Franklin Roosevelt as part of the New Deal. At the time, Republicans were yelling and squealing about it, saying, oh my God, this is going to cause inflation. This has always been their argument. The minimum wage has been raised 38 times since then. It's been nine, I think 10 years now since it's been raised, but it's been raised 38 times since 1936 or 35 when it was put into place. Two of those minimum wage increases were over 30%. If any of those times... If any one of those 38 years when the minimum wage was raised, there was a measurable increase in inflation, that year would be the only thing you would hear out of the mouth of any Republican right now. They'd be going, oh, no, you don't want to see what happened in 1957. You know, back in 1957, they raised the minimum wage by 37 percent, whatever it was. You know, If it had literally ever happened in the history of America, that would be the year, or those would be the years that Republicans would be pointing to. But instead, they're just yelling into the darkness, into the emptiness, because they don't have an example, because there isn't one. Like I said, if you were seeing the wages of people making $100,000 a year go up, yeah, you'd start to see inflation, even $50,000 a year or more. But for people who are making $25,000, $30,000 a year, or, or $15,000 a year, which is what $7 an hour is, if, you know, for them to see an increase in their wages, that is not inflationary at all. So, Brad, no worries. Don't worry about your aunt and uncle who are, on, who are retired. Although we should index Social Security to an actual measure of seniors' inflation because drug prices have been going up faster than the regular inflation index, was, and se- you know, seniors use that. So we need to fix Social Security, but that's a whole other thing. That was actually my other, my other uh, portion of what I was going to ask is, uh, so while you know sometimes you know they get the cost of living increases like ten or thirty dollars a month, then the uh, right. the cost of uh, their Medicare copay, cost of medication, supplemental, all that goes up, almost turning that increase, if you would, into a loss, really. Yeah, so and it shouldn't be a loss, and, and that's the thing. Bernie Bernie has been talking about this. For, also. Yeah, Bernie's been talking about this for twenty years. There's six different measures of inflation. 
that measure different things. And, and this, this, uh, the, the major one that is used is this basket of stuff that includes things like electronics and gym memberships. I mean, all kinds of stuff that seniors just generally are not buying in large quantities. You know, they're not buying new Game Boys every year or whatever they may be. Um, and, and, and Bernie has been arguing, and the Progressive Caucus has been arguing, that there should be a specific measure of inflation that is specific to people over 60. And that that is what should be applied to Social Security. So, you know, when the copay for your Medicare goes up, when the cost of pharmaceuticals goes up, when the cost of nursing home care or elder care goes up, then uh, Social Security should go up. Because it used to be when I was a kid back in the days, back, you know, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Literally, I knew people and my parents, you know, friends of my parents who were retired on Social Security and literally could live on Social Security. You could do that back then. You pretty much can't do that anymore. Social Security does not provide people with enough income that it's a reasonable, you know, reasonable retirement. You have to have a supplement. You either have to have savings or you have to have a pension or you have to have something. Because people just trying to live on Social Security alone, particularly, you know, when you chop Medicare, I mean, Medicare pulls a couple hundred bucks every month out of your Social Security. And if you're only making, you know, eight, nine hundred dollars a month on Social Security, uh, it, that's tough stuff. That's tough stuff. Brad, thank you. Thanks for the call. Um, great one. I, I appreciate those kinds of questions. Todd in Los Angeles. Hey, Todd, what's up? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. Really appreciate uh, all the information that you put out there. I have a question. I'm going to do my best to articulate it, uh, but I think you'll get the gist. Um, So, you know, in Los Angeles, there's a moratorium on evictions for renters and uh, mortgage holders. And at some point that's going to end and you're going to have all these renters and homeowners who owe tremendous amounts to their landlords or to their mortgage banks. And it seems to me that for for a lot of people for a lot of these renters and mortgage holders they're 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 going to require an extraordinary amount of time in order to repay whatever this debt is that they owe to those folks and of course for some of the landlords you know they have uh, an issue on the other end of it where they're not they may not be able to make their their mortgage payments to their banks and at some point this is all going to come to a head and you'll see a whole heck of a lot of uh, evictions and foreclosures. And I wanted to get your thoughts on where do we start in addressing this, this you know, looming problem? I mean, is it, is right. it going to be patterned after what happened in 2008, the mortgage crisis? Or is there something, some, some new kind of safeguard that, that uh, is being discussed to help all of these folks? Because, you know, if you're a waitress or if you're working somewhere that, you know, in a, in a stadium where it's completely shut down and you're not working at all and you're not making your mortgage payments or you're not making right, your rent trouble. payments. Yeah. Todd, let me interrupt you because so I just have 40 seconds left. I, I, I yeah, totally get what you're saying. And the way that every other developed country in the world has handled this is with regular monthly payments to their citizens. Canada is paying every Canadian 
who, you know, was employed and isn't employed or has reduced their employment as a consequence of that. They're paying everybody something on the order of around $1,500 a month. It might even be a little more than that. In the United Kingdom, it's around $2,000 a month. In the Scandinavian countries, some of them, it's it's even approaching $3,000 a month. Um, In Germany, it's 80% of whatever your pay used to be. Um, The United States is the only country, the only developed country, the best of my knowledge, that has not followed that path. And therefore, we have this mess that you just described. And I don't see any easy answer to it. And I don't know what Congress is going to do about it. But I agree with you, something has to be done. And, and once again, it, it could have been fixed. The, the uh, HEROES Act that, that the Democrats passed out of the House of Representatives back in May of last year would have solved this problem with regular monthly payments to people throughout this period of time. The Republicans blocked it every step of the way as they continue to do. Anyhow, get out there, get active, tag your it. Democracy is not a spectator sport, as Bernie always said. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. And welcome back. Eddie in Agritech, uh, Kansas. Excuse me. Hey, Eddie, what's on your mind today? Uh, Tom, uh, um, do you know why the Republicans are uh, trying to stop the uh, uh, Medicare for All, why they're trying to stop the second stimulus? You know, I, my car broke down. The uh, mechanic says, i got to ship it off to a specialist. He don't know whether it's going to be 600 or $2,600. I go down to the bank, and I'm in the heart of Republican country where I'm probably the only progressive. Well, it seems that way. And, and you know what the problem is? is that uh, the Republican businessmen, the Republican senators, they've never been on the bottom, and there is not one ounce of compassion in the Republican Party. I'm with you. The uh, conservative philosophy is an attempt to put a patina of logic and morality on greed. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. And uh, even, I mean, the the uh, legislation right now, this uh, $1.9 trillion stimulus has 60% support among Republicans. It's got over 80% support among Democrats. Overall, it's around 70% among the American public. 60% among Republicans, and yet not one single Republican member of the House or Senate has come out in favor of it. Not one. And it's because the billionaires who fund their elections don't want any more government spending because they know inevitably that's going to mean that their taxes are going to go up. And they do not want to pay taxes. And, and it's just, like I said, these, it's just These people just have greedy. never been on the bottom. They've never been on the bottom yeah. in need. Yeah, I'm, I am absolutely with you. Eddie, thank you for the call. Jake in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jake, what's up? Hi, Tom. Calling in today to bring up a little something that you've probably already seen, but over on YouTube, there is a set of videos entitled The Alt-Right Playbook, and it's well worth watching because in like the second or third in line there, the guy comes out and makes the point that these brainwashed right-wingers only say things, they reply to people that sort of understand the truth in terms that are short, quippy, and false. Mm-hmm. And and one of the ways to fight back against that nonsense is to come up with our own set of short, quippy, and true beliefs. What do you think yeah. about that particular proposal? I like it. 
I like it, Jake. And 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 I think that you know by by focusing on things like uh, Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, and and uh, free college, for example, and just saying here's our agenda. It's got three things, and letting the Republicans just foam at the mouth about you know all their all their uh, so-called social issues. Uh, you know now they're now you've got Marjorie Trader Green going off on on trans people. Um, you've got you know the anti-abortion freaks and the gun nuts and everybody else. And 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 but the Democrats by and large are just ignoring all of that and saying no, we're in charge. This is what we're going to do. It's short, it's tight, it's pithy. I am with you, Jake. That's great. And I'll have to check out the uh, alt-right playbook over on uh, YouTube. Thanks for the tip on that. Stuart in Seacliff, New New York. Hey, Stuart, what's up? Hey, Tom, two quick points. One thing, uh, both at minimum wage. One thing uh, I saw popped up on my news, John Thune was, uh, I guess he was debating a committee about the uh, stimulus bill, and he was saying, oh, Mm -hmm. when I was a kid, I was making six bucks an hour. And then the news pointed out, that it was the equivalent of, but that was more than minimum wage. They figured it was in 1971 when he made that. So it was approximately $24 an hour adjusted for inflation. So yeah. that's one. Yeah, there's somebody on Twitter saying that would be $40 an hour, but uh, it depends on the year that you're looking at. But yeah. And my other point is, um, you know, those of us that support raising the minimum wage, you know, we like to point out that, you know, it kept pace with inflation and productivity until the 60s. And the other thing that, and then it started falling behind. Now, the other thing that happened into the in the sixties was the passage of the Civil Rights Act. So I'm 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 saying that there is a tie, there's a racial component to minimum wage not keeping pace. Would you agree with that? Yes, one of the reasons historically that Southern conservatives opposed increasing the minimum wage. Um, was because they felt that that would increasing the minimum wage would give some benefit to black people. Um, I just finished writing. In fact, it just went off to the to the uh, to the typesetter yesterday. The hidden history of American health care, which will be out in six months or so. And I can tell you, you know, unambiguously, the only reason we don't have a national health care system in the United States is because mostly Southern uh, white racist politicians didn't want black people to have free health care. Uh, it just it, uh, example after example after example going all the way back from all the way back to the 1890s in the United States um, where national health care programs were proposed. It's always that. I'm with you. Thanks, Stuart. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 